Well, I used to say there was an inverted hierarchy of helpfulness. Mm. So I found the other patients the most helpful. Then the cleaners, they were pretty good sometimes. Mm. They have good conversations with the cleaners. Mm-hmm. The nurse, Some of the nurses were quite good, and then the psychiatrists tended to be the least helpful. Yeah, so flipped flipped by pay grade. <laughs> yeah, flipped by pay grade. Yeah. Yeah, and probably not coincidentally <laughs> so. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Big Feels at Work, the show where mental health and addictions workers talk about what it's like to have big feelings of your own and do this work. I'm Graham Panther, and my guest today is none other than Mary O'Hagan. Mary is Victoria's first ever executive director of lived experience at the Department of Health. She leads the new lived experience branch in the department, which is a team of public servants with lived experience of their own. Yes, you heard that right. They are letting us in the public service. All of this, Mary's role, the new branch, it comes in the wake of Victoria's Royal Commission into Mental Health, which called for sweeping changes of our sector, including who gets to be in the room where these big decisions are made. But for Mary, this big new role is really just the latest in a long line of big roles. So like me, Mary's a Kiwi. And back in the early 2000s, she was New Zealand's first openly mad mental health commissioner and ran her own mental health agency as well, Peerzone. So she was instrumental in some of the big changes in New Zealand's mental health sector. And now here she is in Australia doing it here too. But in this chat, we go way back to where it all started, talking about her early days in and out of psych wards as a young woman, and in particular the psychiatric survivor movement that she helped initiate in New Zealand in the 1980s. Even after years of working in government and in policy, Mary still talks like one of us, a rabble rouser. And she stayed that real no matter how fancy her job titles get, which in a world of euphemisms and jargon and service models is pretty refreshing. So here's my chat with Mary O'Hagan. Okay, so one thing I've heard you say a lot, Mary, is uh, I started my career in mental health as a service user. Yeah. I guess I'm curious, just to set the scene for our listeners, can you tell us a little bit about those early contacts with the mental health system in your life what was going on for you and what was the response? You mean the contact as a service user? That's right. Yeah, yeah. Well, I was a very young woman in the midst of major identity formation and existential crises, and it got too much for me. Studying philosophy didn't help, and... I I spiralled into what the system described as a psychotic depression, was eventually admitted to hospital. My admission to hospital was a real threshold, and when I crossed that door, I suddenly became, you know, I I went from being a, a young citizen to a psychiatric patient. And there was a kind of a stripping that took place in a physical, social, and sort of psychological sense, I guess, uh, after that time. So the first stripping happened when they took away my possessions and put me in pyjamas. And then gradually over the time, I felt a stripping of my credibility, my status, and my dreams. And really, after a few years of this, they kind of anointed me with the career of a psychiatric patient. Right. It was not a pleasing anointment, but this is so I got the message 
very clearly that I had a chronic condition. I would need medication for the rest of my life. I wouldn't be able to have a career in the way that I thought I would have because I'd keep having episodes. Hmm. And I should think very carefully about having children because I obviously had some genetic problem that caused me to have mood swings. Fuck. Yeah. And this was all by the age of about 21 or 22. Yeah. I'd been given these diaprognoses. So they were really handing me a career as a psychiatric patient when they said those things. Mm. I didn't want a career as a psychiatric patient. Mm. So I actually questioned their assessment of me. Mm. And I'm so pleased that I was brought up to have a rather questioning, critical approach to the world, which hadn't been terribly, always terribly helpful to me as a teenager, (laughs) but it was very helpful when I had this encounter with the system because I then went and thought about this. I read a lot of anti-psychiatry literature. Mm -hmm. This is how I discovered that there was a movement of people with lived experience in other parts of the world. And through that reading, I discovered that the nature of mental illness, as they called it, is highly contested, Hmm. that there are many, many other ways of viewing these experiences. And that enabled me to really question uh, their dire predictions for my life. And it's been a great joy to prove them wrong. (laughs) A great joy. I get (laughs) immense satisfaction from it. (laughs) Yeah. There's this really great line in your memoir, Madness Made Me, where you say something about how if you told a psychiatrist back then that you'd one day be advising the UN or be a mental health commissioner, they'd have upped your meds on the spot. Yeah. They would have. Yeah. 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 I'd have been told I was grandiose, yeah. Yeah. So there's a lot in that. One of my questions for you was when did you first start to question that medical narrative or that lower your horizons narrative? It sounds like you were questioning that from fairly early on. Yes. And, you know, I was doing an arts degree at university, a degree I never finished, Hmm. and we were – in an atmosphere of questioning, of, you know, protest, critique, experimentation. So it was it was sort of congruent with the way we lived that I would be questioning what psychiatry told me. Mm. It wasn't it wasn't out of kilter with the way I approached the rest of my life. So I think I was fortunate that to have those critical tools to be able to question that. And this was 1980s? Yeah, yeah, early 80s, yeah. In in Dunedin, in New Zealand. Yeah, yeah. So I think about that story and I think about, you know, so my experience sometime later around 2005, 2006, similar age, early 20s, not my first encounter with psychiatry, but the first time that I really got the full the full career off offered in your terms, right? My version of that was uh, you have brain damage, probably irreversible. You'll feel like this for the rest of your life. And I'm 
was thinking through as I was preparing for this interview, I was like, what, what made me reject that eventually? What made mm. me question that? And for me, it was a couple of things. One was I had the, the absolute sheer luck of working at a peer-led mental health organization, so a place called Mind and Body Consultants, which you know well. I was surrounded every day by everyone from the CEO to the cleaner yeah. was mad. And we'd use those terms, right? We'd talk about madness. Wouldn't talk about diagnoses. Mm. We would. We never had a fucking clue what our clients' diagnoses were. But the second part of that is that the only reason that even existed <laughs> is because of people like you, those years beforehand, mm. questioning. And I suppose the, the the bit the bit in my question is for me. Certainly, there was the there was the arts degree as well. There was the philosophy stuff. There was the just generally being a bit of a annoying shit when it came to authority. That was a definitely part of my upbringing. But it was also that I found that community of people. So I'm kind of curious for you. How long was it until you, when you start questioning this, you start thinking, I don't know if these doctors are actually on on about how much they think they're on about what. When did you start to find someone else or other people that had that same questioning stance beyond this? You talk about the books and the reading and the international yeah. But when did that personally hit home? Yeah, so, well, when I was using services, it was just pills and pillows. That's all they had, mm. and they had a bit of group therapy, which is pretty awful. But <laughs> um, but so what? one of the advantages of that was that, you know, we used to get to know people in the hospital. Mm. And that's where peer support for me started. We didn't call it that. We were just supporting each other while the nurses were in the office doing other things. And I think we we had a kind of a I don't know if we had a if we had very sophisticated questioning kind of discussions, but we had a kind of a we joked a lot about, you know, the nurses and the psychiatrists. We joked a lot about, you know, the people who put us in here are the mad ones. You know, we we just kind of had a we did a bit of reframing, and so that was probably the start of it. And then I went to a conference in the mid nineteen eighties, run by the Mental Health Foundation of New Zealand, and I went in there. I I felt like an imposter going in there. There were about 200 people there, and only two of us identified as people with lived experience. Wow. Which I thought was extraordinary. Yeah. And it really uh, it really showed me in a very tangible way how we were just shut out. We were silenced. We were shut out. Our voice wasn't important. And so I got up at the end of that conference and said, you know, we need to be in the room, folks. And I made a decision to then go to Auckland. They gave me some office space in a little cupboard in the corridor to, to use. Mental Health Foundation. Yeah, and that was yeah. great because uh, it gave me a bit of, you know, legitimacy, I guess, to have the foundation backing me. Mm. And then I started to collect together a group of people who were interested in becoming part of this group called Psychiatric Survivors. And we used to meet at someone's place every Thursday night, and it was a wonderful experience to meet with people who had, you know, similar thoughts, similar feelings, and to have the opportunity 
not only to critique what we've been through, but to reform our identities. Hmm. So, you know, the system wanted to give me an identity as someone with a career as a psychiatric patient. And now we were changing that. We were flipping that identity to having a career as an advocate. Mm. And and that requires a lot of flipping mm. of what you've been told. We had a lot of fun, a lot of enthusiasm. We thought about the lunatics taking over the asylum and what a great thing that was. And, you know, we just really, really reframed who we were. Mm. Yeah. It does sound like fun. Like, <laughs> and it sounds like it, I can imagine it's, it's touching on those very same anti-authoritarian philosophical tendencies, right? What I'm always struck with about this stuff we call mental health is it's such a fucking interesting topic, right? You know, Ooh. the line you opened with talking about a human in a desperate existential struggle. Ooh. What could Ooh. be more interesting than that? And yet yeah. we have this way in the sector of making it sound extremely dry and clinical and precise. And look, I can see value in all of those in the right context, but it's also messy and undefinable and mysterious. Yeah. And shared, I think, is probably the other part yeah. of what I'm hearing. So there's something about getting together and talking. Uh, are you talking at that stage, these Thursday night meetups, is it is it how are we going to change the system? Is it, hey, what's going on in your life? Is it a bit of both? Is there no kind of sharp line between those? It was a bit of both. So I think the peer support was really important and we used to look out for each other. But also we were there with a political agenda to change the system. Um, I have to say the uh, the hope of changing the system was far greater then than it is now. Mm. I think um, after all these years, I've my ambitions for that have got smaller and smaller, mm. which I find sad, mm. but that's just, it's very, very hard mm. to change systems. And we didn't realise that back then. We thought we might have it sorted in a few years. <laughs> it was very naive of us. It's 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 that naivety that that you sort of need, though, right? Like I, you do. I wonder if there's a version of that in every generation. Yes, and I think it's the naivety of youth as well, hmm. and you do need it. Although, if someone said came to me and said, "Look, I want to." you know, as a young person said, I want to change the mental health system. Mm. I've got great ambitions for it. Mm. I'd have to uh, give them a slight warning that they're likely, by the time they get to a later stage of life, that they might be quite disappointed. Look, you know, it's very hard too because we only have an allotted span of time. And in the history of human endeavour and the world, it's not very long. And so we may be doing work that is preparing for great change up ahead, but we don't live long enough to see it. I live in hope of that anyway. There's definitely something in that. I'm reminded of there's a Thomas Merton quote, I forget the exact words, but about how as an activist, you have to give up all hope of, of an outcome and and fo focus on the rightness of the work itself. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
I love outcomes. (laughs) 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 I mean, you know, it's all all good to think it's right, but, you know, I do love an outcome. (laughs) Well, I'll give you an outcome then on the topic. (laughs) So I've said a bunch of times on this podcast and elsewhere, my whole career in mental health, my um, everything I've done, and, and to be more frank, my life and where it's at, comes from that movement you're describing like mind and body the place i work wouldn't have existed without that movement and more broadly you know i can imagine a world in which you never got together on those thursday nights and same around the world right all those other kind of pockets of this movement and we're not you know we never shared shared those questions of hey what are these blokes on about and that's not a better world so I hear you and I hear the sadness and mm. that and I hear mm. that underneath the sadness for me is just that mm. kind of low, slow fury and grief about yeah. what hasn't yet changed. Mm. But I do want to name that. Yes, that that has changed. I guess the ultimate indicator of change for me is are people getting a better experience and services? Mm. Well, in some ways, I think they get a worse experience than when I was using services. Mm. The other question is, uh, as a result of using services, do people have better outcomes making a contribution, employment, social networks, housing, sorting out the meaning in their lives? And I I can't see any any evidence that any changes over the last 30 years or 35 years have actually led to better outcomes. The trouble is the system doesn't measure them because they're not particularly interested in long-term outcomes. They're much more interested in short-term risk. Yes, yes. And and finding meaning in one's suffering, not only is that not a clinical outcome, it's the way that you would measure that I think is is not of great interest to the ones measuring it. No, and they well, those are the things they need. Then, and I, you know, I won't get into a debate about how you measure these subjective things. I think you can, mm. in a way, but um, because people just tell you. Yep. Yeah, but you know they they're obsessed with symptoms. Yep. And um, really, what people want is is a job or a meaningful contribution. They want to be socially connected and they want a a decent house to live in as well. And and this is not really – they don't think about that sort of stuff much. And I've been in clinical meetings, and I remember even uh, when I was using services, they just just look at you sort of trying to diagnose you. Even though the diagnosis doesn't necessarily lead to any difference in treatment, no. they get obsessed with diagnosis. Yep. And I, I remember going with a friend of mine to a multidisciplinary team meeting a few years ago. She was a single mother who was having a real struggle bringing up her children. She was poor and she had a lot of anxiety and she was really struggling. And they just sat there quizzing over her diagnosis for an mm. hour. Yeah. And they didn't they didn't even think about 
what her life was like for yeah. her and where she might need some uh, psychological or practical assistance. Mm. And I just think that's a lost opportunity. Fuck yeah. T- tell me about how we so you say that in some ways what people get in services now is less useful than when you were coming up. What What do you mean by that? Well, when I was using services, um, well, firstly, uh, the rate of compulsory treatment has gone up since I was using services, certainly in New Zealand. Hmm. Uh, when I used services, we had, uh, they've been measuring compulsory treatment, I think, since 1954, and we were in a real trough. Hmm. And, um, you know, since the early 90s, it's gone right up again. Hmm. We didn't have locked wards. Uh, we didn't have incredibly busy, overstressed services. We could always get a service if we needed it. And they had, not that I enjoyed it much, but they did. It was just at the beginning of that sort of boom in biological psychiatry. So there were still a few sort of people who believed in group therapy and stuff like that. Not that the group therapy was awful. I don't, but at least it gave them a, they had another paradigm to to think about things. So that's where I think it's got much more like a, crowded conveyor belt today with the with the locked room at the end of it yes i talk a bit about what i call the private pain model Mm. so the private pain model is you're having a hard time you go and see a professional or a series of professionals and if any of them have had the same experience they're not allowed to tell you oh no (laughs) so you walk away or you you stick around for 10 years maybe never talking to a single other person who's gone through it yeah yeah and what does that do to you? Yeah, and that was the advantage of the hospital, I think. Yes. Uh, there aren't many advantages, but but mm. the one advantage was that you meet other people who are going through similar experiences. A hundred percent. A friend of mine talks about her psych ward couch friendships. Mm. And yeah. people she's met in these places that, you know, for whatever reason, you keep up a friendship over years. It might be you hardly see each other for years and then you touch base, but it's, friendships that started on a psych ward couch yeah um and there's something very specific about that because all the walls are down yeah there's no pretending <laughs> oh no and you're, you're in the shit everyone's exactly. in the absolute crap when you yeah. um by the time you get into a psych ward mm. and i had i had some wonderful interactions and relationships with people who were in the psych ward with me i mean i there were some very irritating people as well. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you, that's true of all life, isn't it? So <laughs> the most important conversations, well, I used to say there was a hierarchy of, uh, an inverted hierarchy of helpfulness. Mm. So I found the other patients the most helpful. Then the cleaners, uh, they were pretty good sometimes. Mm. They have good conversations with the cleaners. Mm-hmm. Uh, the nurse, some of the nurses were quite good, and then the, yep. the psychiatrist tended to be the least helpful. Yeah, so flipped, flipped by pay grade. <laughs> yeah, flipped by pay grade. Yeah, <laughs> and probably not coincidentally so. Ah, <laughs> oh, fuck. It's really like one of the things I wonder about with this stuff is, you know, because I, so I started in, in that in that peer-run mental health service that was really a moment in time, right? Like you and others in the system had done a lot of paving the way 
your time as a mental health commissioner kind of paved the way for that kind of service where everyone from the CEO to the clean is mad. And I don't even know if that's still possible now as much in New Zealand, but there was this real moment in time that me and a number of other like people who were still out here waving the flag 20 years later came up through. And it's just interesting to consider like one of the things I wonder about sometimes is the magic of a place like that, the magic of those Thursday nights, Sight yeah. Survivors, catch-ups, yeah. the magic of Big Feels Club. So my my peer-run initiative that I run with uh, my partner, Anna Eastley, the thing, we started in our living room. We, yeah. we had 12 people turn up to my living room um, and bring snacks. And we talked about feelings and the social model of disability. <laughs> it was awesome. Um, but it was like nothing that I'd ever been able to build in the system and get paid for. I guess one of, one of the things I wonder is like, will there always be a sense of the real stuff happening outside the system? Or is there a world in which we eventually get, you know, slowly get the system to to include the stuff that actually does a whole different thing to what they're doing i'm not wiping out yeah the usefulness of all medical interventions etc or, or you know what have you but but there's this whole other side of it that i hear in your story of the thursday nights it's like it's the belonging piece it's oh, the yeah. acceptance piece and it's the discovery of uh, a new framework for or a new lens to look through things. And this worries me about people who get jobs in the system and haven't had that kind of experience. Yes. And they just, you know, they've been through their own experience of using services. They've never really had that opportunity to, uh, you know, explore a, a, a lived experience lens apart from their own individual experience then they get a job in the system and they're often not treated very well mm. uh, their job is not understood by mm. the other the other staff in the system yep. uh, and it's uh, it's it's and the system is a genius for remaking innovation in its own image mm. uh, and so we have a whole cohort of lived experience workers in varying degrees i mean in some places they do better depending on the leadership and how much they understand but who who really they've got three choices really they can become acculturated into that system mm. without all that work that we were able to do yeah they can question the system and they'll probably get spat out mm-hmm. uh, or they can just leave and unless the system transforms, that's the only only choices people have. And yeah, I can see there are places where it is starting to change. Mm. I mean, I was at a service um, recently, and I really questioned the lived experience workers very carefully about, you know, do you feel valued and respected here? And they said yes, mm. and that was that was great to see. But you go to other places where that's just not happening. Yeah, exactly. It is. It is. It's very patchy. It's these pockets of uh, places that get it. So what that makes me think of is there's one. Uh, there's, there's a few examples I see because you know my day job's an evaluator, right? So I evaluate oh. services, particularly peer services. That's kind of my my big thing. And 
seeing the places that are doing okay, they're hiring the staff, they're doing the basics right, getting the job description for the peer worker, not expecting the peer worker to be a clinician, yada, 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 all good stuff. But then there's those places that really get it and it's like, oh, shit, <laughs> this yeah. is how it can work. And it yeah. kind of, you, you need to come across that even just to remember it's still possible. Yeah, it's um, very important. Yes. And even if that's pointing to places overseas, right? It's one of the reasons I keep banging on about my experience in New Zealand 20 years mm. ago. It's like, remember it's possible. Mm. Mm. Remember it's possible. And I think that's part of why people are, are excited to have you and your role in government because it's like, you've seen it. Now, on the other side, you've also seen all the ways that it doesn't quite get there. And I hear that and I see that look on your face. But you just have to remind yourself it's possible, even if you don't know how you're going to get there. Yeah, that's true, Graham. And um, I suffer from a bit of despondency sometimes. So it's always good to be reminded that um, <laughs> <laughs> these things are possible. Yeah. Well, you, you carry that as part of the work, right? Yeah. So there's, there's a few things I want to ask you about that. On the workforce question, so as I say, this podcast is an interesting mix of we've got peer workers, lived experience, role people, we've got clinicians, GPs, psychologists, social mm. workers, nurses, the occasional psychiatrists even who are listening who have lived experience of their own and often no one at work knows or very few people mm. know. Mm. And then we also have managers. And, and it's, mm. to, to be clear, it's some of those managers with, with the hidden lived experience who are doing the fucking awesome Mm, creating the little pockets of change by the way and i don't think that's a coincidence but one question i hear a lot from those people the ones in the non-designated roles is they see all this change happening they see this push for more lived experience roles push for more lived experience leadership and they can quite reasonably ask where do i fit in all of that does my lived experience count so i'm curious if you had a, a take on that what do you think the role is for clinicians and managers with lived experience in this new supposedly new system I think it would be a great world if everyone could just be open about their lived experience. Yeah. I I mean, and in some ways, the sort of idea of designated roles is a little bit more institutionalised in Australia than New Zealand. Right. Uh, And I just think we just, and I, you know, I get clinical people who come to me and say, I've got a lived experience and I'm a clinician, but I've been told by my boss I can't ever mention my lived experience to the people (laughs) who use the service. I just think that's bizarre, absolutely bizarre that you wouldn't be able to do that. Mm. Um, And so I, so really we need to create a system where people feel safe and welcome when and able to declare that they have lived experience mm. and just use that in a very natural way in their work. Now, having said that, there are lots of different ways of using it. And currently, if you're a peer support worker or someone, you use it in a particular way and it's very intentional mm. and it's it's to the forefront. Mm. Whereas if you're in a clinical role, you, you're working with a few different sort of worldviews at once probably. Uh, some of which may conflict with each other. But I just think we really need to open it up so that people can be out about these things. Mm. It's a shame that so many people, I I understand why, but so many people don't. 
so I started this work as a completely out person. I've never been, I've never had that process of coming out. And so it's a very different experience for me than it is for others. Yeah, yeah, it is. I have a, I have a little taste of it because when, when I came to Australia, I went a little bit back in the closet. Like I had, I had websites talking about my madness. I'd been in the New Zealand Herald talking about my madness, and then here I was trying to get a job and realised, yeah, oh, yeah. it's a bit different here. They have some different attitudes over yeah. here still. So I did go a little bit more in the closet, but I'm similar to you. I've, I've mostly been pretty, pretty damn out, and these days, sort of, mm. no going back. But what I hear from people is such a range of reasons they feel they can't be honest, and some of it is like, some of it's literally just shitty workplaces which mental mm. health has a few of right like every every sector so you know a boss that will use any sign of so-called weakness as a as a tactic to bully you there's definitely some of that mm. but then the more kind of subtle one is like just hearing the way your colleagues talk about those people yeah yeah well, all of that certainly. shit yeah, yeah you know the way they talk about certain diagnoses and it's sort of just this assumed yeah shared shared opinion and the funny uh, thing is they wouldn't talk about that uh, like that in, in front of me, but they would if they didn't know that I had lived experience. So it's re- yeah. really interesting. So they're privy to some uh, pretty interesting conversations that I probably never hear. Yes, 100%. Um, and then there's, you know, again, layers upon layers of this in terms of like uh, – some people I hear from say they're out about having lived experience, but not the whole story, <laughs> which I can relate to. Because even though I've yeah. been out, I've been out since I was twenty three. There was a whole period of time, particularly when I moved here to Australia from New Zealand, early thirties, trying to really have a career. You know, wearing a suit oh. to work and trying to really oh. like be one of the professional people. I would often talk about my stuff in the past tense. <laughs> yeah, yeah. When really. It's right here in the present. And there's certain things I'd share and certain things I wouldn't, whereas nowadays it's all out there. But I totally understand that. And then there's this whole, and this goes back to what you are saying before, there's this whole other layer of outness around not only how out am I about my experiences, but how out am I about my opinions? And so, you know, for instance, I had heard from one lady recently saying, you know, people know I have lived experience, but they don't know that I think compulsory treatment should be abolished. You know what I mean? Like there's these really interesting layers there of honesty. Yeah, yeah. And it does make me wonder, like, I'm with you, I can totally see why that is how it is, but it makes me wonder what would it be like and what would it take to get us to a place where we're being more honest about all this? Yeah, and it depends what role you're in. Mm. Uh, I mean, I'm currently employed as a public servant, so, uh, you know, you give up quite a lot of freedom of speech as a public servant. I don't think people kind of see that. But that that's all public servants, not just public servants with lived experience. So why I wonder why the person who wants to see compulsory treatment abolished. It'd be interesting to know the context in which they felt they couldn't talk yeah, about it. It is interesting. Yeah. I don't really know. There's essentially around there's just certain opinions that they don't share with their colleagues. Are they but, clinical colleagues? Yes, they're in, yeah, yeah, and yeah, they're, yeah, and they're yeah. clinical themselves. So yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, you know, it's a shame because we need to have these discussions. You know, there are a widespread, very lazy, not very well-examined beliefs about seclusion and restraint and compulsory treatment that are pervasive through the system, and we need people 
to start having the conversation about other ways or alternative ways of approaching these difficult situations. So I would really encourage people to, and I know you you need to feel safe about this, mm. and but I, I really encourage people if they feel they can to take the risk and to start even asking questions. Like you don't have to say, I think compulsory treatment mm. should be abolished. Mm. You could say, well, you know, there's a Royal Commission recommendation to reduce compulsory treatment. How's our service going to um, live up to that recommendation? I mean, that's the start of a conversation. Yeah, that's interesting. Oh. That's interesting. The kind of almost the naive inquirer. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's something in that. One, one of the things I keep coming back to with this particular group of, of workers, because we're talking about, you know, peer workers are isolated enough, but here oh. we're talking about workers... Yeah. Clinicians with lived experience, yeah. they don't talk to each other at all about this. Yeah. Like yeah. they have no sense of community mostly. Yeah. It's part of what we're offering with this podcast. That's a small drop in, mm. the, in the ocean. Mm. So I wonder if part of the starting point is just creating spaces to even just talk about these dilemmas together. We're actually we're doing an experiment next week. By the time this comes out, it'll have happened already, but we're doing a live version of this with a, with a bunch of listeners. We're trying some stuff in that space. But I, I just wonder... You know, our colleague Gareth Edwards, who hosts this show with me a lot, he he talks about the early 2000s in New Zealand where there was just so many opportunities to come together as workers in this space with lived experience. So things like the Like Minds Like Mind program, another kind of hooey, where they were just a vehicle, an excuse to get together and nut it out. Does that kind of resonate with you? Like, is that something that... Yeah, I I do notice in Victoria, and this might be partly post-pandemic, that there aren't many meeting points. We've been thinking from the lived experience branch perspective about how we could create more meeting points for people. That's that's very true. Yeah, it's an interesting one, and I, I, I'm I'm yeah I'm I'm really curious to con- continue that conversation with whoever's keen. To be honest, because yeah, I'm, hear- I'm hearing a lot out there of people asking for it, and a few little green shoots of things happening mm. as well. And certainly, I think people working in the system who have lived experience but aren't in designated roles are a really important group of people that you know we need to look out for them yeah. and uh, make sure that they're supported and strengthened by the interactions they have with each other, so that they feel they can go into that world. And maybe at some stage, use their lived experience in a more overt way. It's almost first aid at this point, mm. but first aid in the form of community. And I'm seeing an interesting parallel with with where this combo started around, yeah, finding those others others mm. questioning, you know, finding those yeah. those Thursday night catch ups. So my last sort of line of questioning is just to kind of wrap us up is around sort of getting onto the topic of looking after yourself and the work. And, I, and one thing I asked all, all my guests is how do you, how do you approach that? So you've been, you've been doing this work for a, for a fair while now in, in a number of ways, right? You've been an advocate and ad- activist. You've been an entrepreneur with, with peer zone, with your, your peer support company. Mm. You've been, you've been uh, you know, working with the UN, you've been a commissioner. Now you're in this government role in this very senior government role. How do you look after yourself in that work? And and the context of that question is, 
you know, I don't need to tell you this, it's bloody personal work. <laughs> we have, it, it touches so many nerves in mm. ourselves. Mm. How do you look after yourself in that work and still be effective? So if I look at my whole working life, I started off with a, a naive idea that we would change things in a few years. Then I reached a gradual understanding that that wasn't going to happen. Then I got very angry for about a decade. And now I've kind of, uh, I've reached a sort of state of resignation almost. I mean, not not giving up hope, but but just uh, it's a sort of post-anger period where you, 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 you know, where you accept that this is the way things are and you just think, well, we're just going to work with what we've got. Mm. So looking after myself probably meant different things at different times. Mm. What does looking after myself mean at the moment? I mean, I don't work too hard. I'm not going to get caught up working eighty hour weeks. I've never I've never had the I've never had the ability to do that. I just get my brain just stops after Same. about fifty hours and I can't do any more. Yeah. Then when I was bringing up children, I had to go home and cook dinner. So mm. That stopped me from working too hard. Mm. So I think that's that's been one really important thing. Uh, I think part of looking after myself is having other people in the lived experience branch who having a sense of uh, community and a sense of uh, shared purpose with them. Yep. I think that's really important to have other people around in the workplace. And you don't have to sort of explain everything to them. They 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 get it. Yeah. I guess there's a sort of a, an internal thing about uh, not expecting, you know, I've, I've got to a point where I look after myself by not expecting too much of uh, what happens. You know, if, I, if I'm finding it a struggle, I talk to people about it. I don't talk to my team about it, but I, mm. I talk to other people. And I might get uh, some mentorship. I might talk to my boss about it or my executive colleagues or people outside the organisation. And I think it's really important not to struggle in silence. Yeah. It's good to name it. Yeah. And I mean, and just sitting with it. I mean, I you know, I love fixing things. That's why I love outcomes, you see. <laughs> anyway, but... I do like I do like to fix things, and um, I've had to learn to just sit with my own discomfort sometimes, and just say, mm. "Think I've lived long enough now to know that it passes." Yeah. And the other thing about me that I I've had a really it's been interesting that I haven't really had any um, major mental distress for a long time. Do you know how you you sort of have periods where you're feeling absolutely Back there, in that really terrible space, yep. I don't, I don't experience that anymore. Mm. And I, I think that makes life at work easier for me than mm. if I was, you know, going up and down and uh, having periods where I found I couldn't concentrate, mm. or I was so distressed that I couldn't face people at work, or I just felt too depressed or too animated mm. to even focus. So I think. I think that makes it easier that I don't I don't 
that's a it's a very much a past tense for me. Touch wood. I mean, you know, who knows what will happen to me next week. But <laughs> but um, I do think that that it's more complex when you're currently living through forms of distress. <laughs> yeah, you can say that again. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Last question then, because it sounds like I'm hearing this kind of almost next chapter for you of the kind of the post-anger Mm. And actually, uh, I'm hearing a kind of stoicism in your lowering <laughs> the bar, which is something we talk about with Big Feels Club a lot. Is like lower your expectations, and usually you'll you'll be happier about what happens, regardless, right? So, but what I'm curious about is with all that, what keeps bringing you back to the work? Well, it's a very interesting question. When I started this work, I was only going to do it for two or three years, and then I was going to go off and be a photographer, I think, or oh. something. Wow. So. A sort of foolish tenacity. I don't know. Um, <laughs> I, I um, look. I, I guess I, I like the work. After all these years, I've built up quite a big knowledge base and an understanding from very, very different points in the sector about how it all works. And mm. I, so I think, in some ways, although I'm a terrible bureaucrat, <laughs> I do have. I do have some things to offer in that context, yeah. but don't ask me about process because I just the you know the processes kill me. But yeah. but I think I think what I can offer is I've always thought about what could be. I've probably spent more time thinking about what could be than what is, mm. and so I think I can offer a vision about how things could be different. Yeah, and I think that's. Quite important. I mean, not everyone wants to hear it, but you know, okay, I'll keep saying it. Yes. Well, <laughs> I'm sitting here thinking. I wonder if the ways you think you're a terrible bureaucrat are exactly the ways that we need you in there, reminding people what the fuck we're trying to do here. Well, in fact, I mean, bureaucratic skills are very important. Sure. Um, I mean, uh, you know, people in the bureaucracy need to have them, and yeah. I admire the people who are good at it. Oh, it's just, yeah. it's just like I'm just not yeah. <laughs> particularly good at that sort of thing. But I've got people around me who are, so well, there you go. I can rely on them. So we'll leave it there, Mary. Thank you so much, Mary O'Hagan, for joining us on Big Fields at Work. As always, lovely to talk to you, Graham. Awesome.